G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. I mean, we've been talking about the huge challenges around the growing number of homeless in Australia. And there are many examples of homelessness going hand in hand with drug and alcohol addiction. And a further development, there's now evidence that relaxing restrictions on drugs goes hand in hand with the relaxation of prostitution laws. That's the New Zealand story. We might talk about that. Well, here, as cost of living bites, rents are rising, immigration numbers are soaring, we're back today on drug and alcohol issues that many vulnerable people share. And we might wonder what this means for young people in the next emerging generation. Well, there's pressure on the New South Wales state government now to follow in Queensland's footsteps and introduce drug law reform measures. Queensland and the ACT are winding back the so-called war on drugs in favour of drug diversion programs for people carrying smaller amounts of illicit drugs. So we're back today with drug educator Shane Varco. He's CEO at Dalgano Institute, one of the 400-plus member organisations of the World Federation Against Drugs. And, of course, Dalgano is a health education charity. And uh, Shane Varco, a special welcome back to 2020. Always good to be with you, Neil. Thanks for having me, of course. Hey, Shane, uh, winding back the war on drugs. Uh, Some of the states are leading the way here. Have you got a little bit of an update for us as to, you know, what states and territories are where they might be at in, in that, that so-called war on drugs or lack of it? Yeah, interestingly, the war on drugs issue, of course, Australia, as you rightly indicated, perhaps at the start of the show, Neil, the war on drugs has never actually landed in Australia in 1985 when we introduced the our national drug strategy. The first iteration was the harm minimisation platform. And that means uh, there's three pillars to that. Again, demand reduction is the first first pillar with the priority this time. Supply reduction and harm reduction. Now, the reason for the the introduction of that particular platform was that they concluded in 1985 that drugs were a part of the Australian culture, primarily because a lot of politicians' kids were getting into drugs and they didn't know what to do with it, so they wanted didn't want their kids in jail. So they introduced this very uh, lenient program so 1985 you don't have a war on something you've capitulated to but it's a great meme it's a great catch-all that that we borrow well the the pro-drug activists borrow from america we've never had a war on drugs in this country we did get a tough on drugs policy between uh sort of the late 90s and early in 2007 under the howard government and that tough on drugs policy saw an incredible impact on the reduction of drug use of addiction rates, all sorts of things, but that's another story. So, yeah, the tough on drugs era worked, but now we're winding that back, have been for the last 10 years. Okay, so Australia's only ever had t- 
tough on drugs. That war on drugs has really been something uh, that's been an import from other countries that have tried that. And uh, there might be even listener thoughts on, uh, you know, the sorts of perceptions you might have as to whether war on drugs and tough on drugs actually works at all and uh, whether or not the tough on drugs ought to be tougher instead of uh, weaker. Because when we talk about law reform... When it comes to drugs, usually that's these days, Shane, that's really more about uh, softer on drugs, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Unfortunately, that's that's kind of the, the new narrative. And, and one, they've been pushing hard on this. Well, there's certain people in the sector, I should say. Uh, we, we call the, uh, the bad actors that, uh, that don't really care about the drug user or addiction. They just want to liberalise drugs so that they can use them with impunity. And tragically and cynically, they use the very important harm reduction pillar in the national drug strategy to come in underneath that. And they reinterpret language to actually make make drug use, <coughs> excuse me, more liberal. So the push has always been this kind of change the language, change the narrative, and then you introduce the next phase of decriminalisation. Of course, they've been lauding, trying to laud the, the Portugal model which is a failed model and won't work in Australia anyway, but the evidence is being twisted and, and, and rebadged and reproduced. And But any any clinical and objective look at the policy shows they had a serious problem in, in Portugal, which was a unique setting as well. The measures they, they implemented in that unique setting did have an impact for a season, but now their drug use has gone back up again because every time you create a, per- a per- permission model, Neil, and your viewers know this, uh, your listeners know this, sorry. It, 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 greater accessibility, greater acceptability, and greater availability is an equation for greater consumption. That's just a, it's a law. It's a law of consumption. And so when you give permission models, of course, any permission model adds to the demand. And demand is the first pillar of the national drug strategy, which we're supposed to be fighting for. Decriminalisation doesn't support demand reduction. It increases it. Well, common sense might say increased consumption will lead to increased addiction. And uh, for some drugs we hear about, Shane, uh, once or twice used and an addiction has formed. And with the figures, as uh, I picked up one statistic, something like one in six Australians will have used an illicit drug in the past year. And I think those statistics are a few years old now. Um, It's probably uh, perhaps even an increase on that. But uh, more consumption, more addiction, is that common sense? Or is that, you know, what's what's wrong with that sort of statement? What's wrong with that thinking? Any thoughts here? Sure, no, absolutely. Now, it's a good question because, again, what the what the bad actors have to do is they have to contri- continually change narratives and change language. Now, the word dependency and the word addiction and the word a substance use, the term substance use disorder are all scalable. They're all scalable realities. Now, your listeners have to understand this. So we don't use, oh, using the language, oh, that's an addicted person. That's That's now got a stigma label attached to it. Interesting, isn't it? People who are addicted to drugs and trying to exit drug use will call themselves an addict and they want to get clean. Both those words are now being labelled, oh, that, that's putting stigma. So what you do is you craft language to stop challenging the conduct. So even when you say, oh, I'm addicted to drugs, oh, no, no, you're not addicted. You have a substance use dependency. So dependency and uh, sort of in, in, in addiction, and like I said, these are scalable realities. But what's fascinating is no drug addiction starts without the first use. First use 
every single drug addiction, every single drug dependency regimen, every single person that's got a ongoing issue with drugs, and they say, oh, I don't have a drug problem. I use every day, but I don't have a problem with it. Well, you're, you're dependent on that drug, and therefore addiction is the next level for that. And consequently, the, the physical, emotional, and health impacts of that, whether they are overtly seen or not, are, are continuing to develop, and that is a serious problem for public health as well as the personal health of the individual. So again, every use adds to the potential for dependency and addiction. Absolutely, Neil, 100%. You know, uh, there's all sorts of issues that we face in a society, and I'll often say that once you're an adult, really, you know, you make your own decisions and you live with your own consequences. But where we put our attention is to children and teenagers and what they're being influenced by. And so many will see the whole drug industry as predatory on children and young people. Any thoughts here about the protection of children, young people as they're being formed into adulthood? Uh, What are your thoughts here as a drug educator, Shane? Absolutely imperative, Neil. I think this is one of the biggest issues. Every business going just to business models, for example, it's been said by some of the highest uh, business practitioners in the world over many years, if you want to be operating in 20 years' time, you must market to children. Well, what's tra- so therefore, any product that you want to put out there, you've got to be marketing to children to get that allegiance at an early age so that the brand can continue to go. But when it comes to illicit substances or any drug, for even illicit drugs, every addictive substance or potential for addictive substance is a guaranteed clientele. So, and the younger a person uptakes drug use, the younger that the developing brain is the key issue here. Now, just just for for your listeners' sake, the developing brain, sort of from basically from puberty, it's anywhere between sort of ten and thirteen, fourteen, right up to about thirty years of age. Some are arguing thirty-two. The brain is going through its second most important developmental stage, and every substance use, illicit or illicit, nicotine and and alcohol included does a level of damage to the developing brain. It short circuits it, it shortcuts it. It could be a minute uh, impact or it could be a severe impact, as you said, and depending on the substance engaged will determine the level of impact. And, of course, that person now has, it's uh, both brain-wise and cellular-wise, I won't go into the details on that, is now been so impacted that their body now goes, wow, I, that, that was an amazing event, I want that. And that's the start of your dependency journey. And so all of a sudden, people are starting using that to, to feel better or self-medicate or just to get a high. And at a younger age, that has a huge impact. Now, the United Nations have got a very strict and clear policy around this, Article 33. It talks about that society is supposed to protect children from exposure to drug use, drug manufacturing, drug supply. That's one of the priorities of the United Nations. Yet the grown-ups, uh, particularly in the, in the pro-drug grown-ups in our culture, keep lauding this libertine model of, well, it's my life, I do what I want, not understanding that we live communally and every model that the grown-ups manifest or produce impacts the emerging generation. So we've got a problem in there. Well, we've certainly got a problem in the ACT where decriminalisation is already the law. Uh, in Queensland, as I have uh, been able to glean it appears they're now poised to pass legislation to divert thousands out of the courts and into health and education programs. Uh, we might talk about that. Um, in Victoria, we we're only just talking just a few minutes back in the previous conversation with the Australian Christian Lobby, uh, where last week uh, the Victorian government 
has made permanent with their legislation now the drug injecting room in North Richmond. Uh, but uh, when you're talking, when you're comparing the states and territories, as I've mentioned, the ACT, uh, I've mentioned Queensland's on the brink. Um, there's all sorts of other states that don't have these sorts of laws yet. Is it is it too late to sort of head it off at the pass? What sort of movement do you need, Shane, to be able to head it off at the pass? Well, again, it's about, it's about how framing the argument and then priming the culture. That's how this all works. So this is this was done, for example, WA, give you, going back down many years ago, South Australia decades ago decriminalised cannabis, then recriminalised it. WA did the same. So there was moments where we tried this and the idea was we, we want to use diversion programs. And we agree. Now, we need to make this very clear to your listeners, uh, Diversion uh, is a key issue here, an important issue. Uh, The criminalising of drug use, solely for for drug use, is not what we advocate for. But the law, this is where it's really important, what we call the legislative educator, is a key tool in transitioning a person away from drug use without creating a punitive environment. In other words, you don't have to punish and jail and give a criminal record to a drug user. Now, the decriminalisation model is supposed to be about diversion without criminalising the the the, uh, the particular drug user. Now, we've argued that you don't have to shift the existing laws to do that. You can simply in- institute the diversion programs. And so, but once you put on the books that these drugs are decriminalised, then all of a sudden that's always a step to the next level of, uh, of legalising, which we're watching in the ACT. When certain parties are in power, they did this, and then they're starting to push for the next level. But drug courts already exist for the purpose of diverting people away from jail and from punitive responses to the purposes of, of health and education. Now, once you take that judicial educator out, that if you like that uh, that stick and, and just give all carrot, as the argument is from the, the pro-drug lobby, you can't make people change uh, their, their behaviour. Well, you can't coerce them and you can't seduce them into change, behaviour change. So how do you how do you facilitate change in a drug user? It's it's a it's a silly argument. But we know from the data that 53%, the percentages between those who are coerced, if you like, into rehabilitation and those who voluntarily enter it is literally 2 or 3%. So we know that people need help because the substances that engage them psychologically, emotionally and physiologically are incredibly harmful and incredibly controlling. And you need a vehicle to shift. And the legislative vehicle educator is powerful if it's used to recalibrate and re-educate, not to punish and that's our argument. And these states are throwing out the baby with the bathwater. That's what's concerning us. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 with Neil Johnson on Vision. Well, our talkback line is open. 1-800-316-316. You might have issues around your own family or in your own community. Uh, people who are connected in some way with church life, struggling through on issues around drugs. Well, we're talking with Shane Varco. He's CEO at Dalgano Institute and getting our heads around what it is to be tough on drugs and what it is to have diversion programs too that will be helpful for people who have a drug addiction. Or uh, I think in Shane's words, uh, a con- a uh, a, uh, not necessarily a drug addiction, but maybe the way that people are referring to these things these days, substance use dependency. Let's call it drug addiction as we go with our conversation today. Hey, Shane, come back to these drug diversion programs. Um, what they're proposing to do in Queensland, uh, have a warning on the first occasion, 
and an offering of a place in a diversionary program run by healthcare workers on the second and third occasions. And if drugs were found on the fourth occasion, police would issue a court notice. Um, Give us your thoughts here on drug diversion programs and how that works with police uh, who are out on the streets and and, uh, trying to police these things. Sure. And I understand from a policing perspective, it's it's a tough gig because you've got, you know, people using, uh, you know, a little bit of weed or a little bit of, you know, coke or whatever. And it's like, do we, and they seem to be functioning okay. They're not doing anything behaviourally wrong at, at that stage. Therefore, we, 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 because they've got a drug, if it's on the books, they've got a drug, we have to act on it. We have to, we can't just give them a, 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 a wink and a nudge and a see you later. So I get that kind of dynamic and the old argument that, Many police have used, and many uh, many in the sector have used. You cannot arrest your way out of this problem. We're not arguing that, but what we are arguing is that, similar to the Swedish uh, uh, compassionate model, which was uh, so legislative compassionate model, which is a similar thing. What they're doing, they didn't change the laws, but what they do is they just put this injunction in, so you didn't have to decriminalise the drug use, and that's I think that's where it gets muddy. And the bad actors want to, you know, manipulate the language so they can get drugs more liberalised and normalised for personal use so that they can use their drugs with impunity. The problem is with a substance, and this is the issue, and again, getting back to young people, it's the first time, the second time, the third time, the fourth time. Now, if the police officer interacts or, you know, a member of law enforcement interacts with a drug user, this won't be the first time they're using drugs, right? They're probably regularly using. That's why they're out and about using drugs. So this person's already in the in the in the game, right? So you say, oh well, you've been done. So that's on the on the record. So you got this kind of it's kind of like a a criminal kind of heads up. So the journey is gets a bit too long. And once you've got to that fourth stage, if you ever get caught again, you're already well and truly entrenched. And what young people are picking up on, and this is this was beautifully borne out in an event I was at in March this year, when when the ACT had done that, and, and Queensland were now stepping into this arena. I went to this considerably large youth event at Western Suburbs in Melbourne, and uh, I was waiting in the foyer, and a young uh, immigrant uh, 14-year-old kid came up to me and said, oh, are you speaking about drugs tonight? I said, yeah, I am. He said, oh, you know, I hear that in the ACT, you can have a whole gram of Coke on you and no one will do nothing. Is that true? And he was saying it with some excitement. So, again, what the message has got through to young people is that, oh, okay, Drugs, they're not going to worry about drugs anymore, so I can actually do this and this won't be a problem legally. So you can see even that statement, I think that statement encapsulates pretty much the entire program. Again, the disregard for the emerging generation because everything that's instituted in, in a culture is a reflection of the culture and kids see that and they go, okay, and they're looking for a shortcut in rebellion and pride and selfishness and, and if, if the cues are contagion for use, then they're going to follow that contagion. And we know from best practice, protective protective um, practices and risk factors, they're really important, that contagions work really well in both areas. So we need protective contagions, but this is a risk contagion. This is basically opening up another door of access for young people. It's not reducing drug use. It's not remediating from drug use. It's not facilitating recovery from drug use. It's actually inviting people into it. Now, ultimately, at the fourth level, yes, there might be a, a, a criminal in, uh, intervention, where they may be compelled to go to rehab. But what we're now finding with those who are well and truly entrenched in drug use, not necessarily manifesting addictions, but they are dealers, what they're using is their addiction 
as a free pass. Oh, yeah, I'm addicted. I can't help it. I'm sorry. I go to a seven-day detox, and after seven days, I tick the box, I'm clean, I go out, and I try not to get caught again. So no one's actually been transitioned away from drug use. That's what's concerning for us. As you say, it's a little bit like an invitation when you decriminalise. Uh, let's take that a step further, and I'll get your thoughts. Because if you decriminalise, so clearly there are going to be some entrepreneurs, uh, you know, we call them drug dealers, oh. Uh, who can then market a commercial drugs industry. I mean, is that where we're headed with this style of decriminalisation and almost an encouragement and invitation to partake of drugs? Well, I think that's already there. I think that, and that's that's the issue. It's already there, but what we're going to do is actually uh, unleash it a little bit more. <clears throat> and that's always been the agenda. So what, what the, the pro-drug activists are continually doing behind the scenes in legislative arenas as well, we... We find them all the time, and they, they they get it underneath the genuine harm reduction. I want to reiterate that again. again. Harm reduction is an important pillar of the national drug strategy, and it's supposed to be for helping those caught in the tyranny of addiction escape drug use, exit drug use, be rehabilitated. But what these actors do is they engage the harm reduction mechanisms to, con to, uh, to sustain drug use, not exit drug use. So we give them empower, enable, and equip ongoing drug use, not exiting from drug use. And, of course, you're right, the entrepreneurs, they're already worked out the mental health system. When they go before a judge, they say, oh, they're drug dealers. I know from people that have spoken to me in different states, they've rang me and say, we've got drug dealers that we know are drug dealers being caught dealing with kids. They go to before a magistrate and they say, I've got a mental health problem, magistrate. I can't help it. I'm sorry. I've got a drug addiction. I've got a mental health problem. Oh, okay. Go to detox. No criminal sanctions for your drug dealing. I won't do it again. Yeah, I'm just trying to get clean, blah, blah, blah. And they get a skate. They skate on a a seven-day or 28-day uh, rehab, and then they put the purposes of going back to, to sell drugs. Now, this is we know this for a fact from people that were working in the sector in different states. And so this decriminalisation mechanism, unfortunately, with its, its desire to do good, is actually going to be harnessed by a lot of these actors to actually further their trade, further their, their reach, further their impact and influence in society. And as I mentioned before, that 14-year-old boy... He's going, wow, this is, this is, I'm not saying he's going to jump and grab a drug, but that was the thing that he, that jumped out at him. So you can imagine what's going to be happening with a lot of young people who are already dabbling in that space. I mentioned in the introduction, uh, there's some evidence from New Zealand that uh, prostitution law goes hand in hand. Uh, this sense of what happens when you decriminalise uh, prostitution uh, then you have a government a way of regulating the industry and then uh, putting a tax on the industry. It becomes a revenue raiser. Uh, is this something similar that's, uh, that might eventuate uh, so far as drug use goes? Well, of course, that's the ultimate aim of the pro-drug activists. They want to, to decriminalise and commercialise all, so legalise and then commercialise all drug use. And the idea is they've done this with can try to do this with cannabis in America and in the North, North America that is with the US and Canada. It's been an abject failure, regardless of the, the propaganda put out by the system. You've got three markets of the, for the marijuana market in America. You've got the the, the illegal illicit markets continuing to grow, it hasn't disappeared as they promised it would. You legalize it, it'll disappear. No, it's grown. The grey market, which is interesting, that's the area where people are dodging legislation because when you legalize something, you have to have bureaucratic legislation around it, quality control, who's selling it, you're paying your taxes, are you doing the fees, are you gathering the, the revenue for the government? And, of course, a lot of them aren't doing that. So there's a grey industry where that's – and, then of course, you've got the legal industry, which needs to be policed, 
And, of course, they say, oh, well, we're going to stop policing the, the, <laughs> the illicit drug use, but now you have to police the illicit drug use. So the actual enforcement, using that term rather than policing, around substances hasn't really saved any money at all. The actual net outcome has been an increase. And, but also, remember, this is an addiction-for-profit product, Neil. This is a guarantee. The more use, the greater the addiction potential. And that's the key about normalising drug use. More people use it. And, of course, whether they tried, didn't like it, they get hooked. They get hooked. And all of a sudden they have to self-medicate their new found hobby. And, of course, that is a guaranteed cash flow for dealers. Now, the government then will say, well, okay, well, if we legalise it, then we can get revenue and help. Then the government then become party to actually the addiction for profit industry. They're already doing that with alcohol. They're trying to regulate that, and that's killing that. So it's a really it's a really fascinating thing to watch. Governments think that they can control illicit, well, psychotropic toxins with taxation. It just doesn't work. We're back with drug educator Shane Varco. He's CEO at Dalgano Institute. It's one of the 400-plus member organisations of the World Federation Against Drugs. And our talkback line open, 1-800-316-316. Before we go any further, Shane, why don't we take a call? Brett sure. is in Cooler in New South Wales near Mudgee. Hi, Brett. Welcome along. Hey, Brett. Uh, hello. Thanks for taking me call. I've just pulled over. Uh, police were behind me, would you believe? But they're gone past me. <laughs> I thought they were pulling me out of them. But, uh, yeah, I... I, I call up because I'm very interested with what you're talking about because um, uh, and I definitely agree with everything that Shane's saying it is Shane isn't it Yes, yeah, the, that's right, yeah. the one with all the knowledge um, I, I'm a um, I'll just give you a quick uh, rundown I, I'm 60 years of age now and I'm a recovering addict I've been uh, on a methadone program for God nearly 35 years now I'd say um, I spent a lot of my life, you know, trying to give up addiction and, you know, the, the in jail and out of jail and, and you know, through the, the programs that you're speaking about that the people do and all that type of thing. But I, I just wanted to say all of my problems started from marijuana. I started using yep. pot when I was yep. very young, about 12, and that's why yep. I'm so against um, you know, like legalising marijuana. I think marijuana is a is a like they say it's a soft drug, but I don't think it is. I think it no, causes it's not. people great harm over over a long period of time. Do you do you agree yes. with that? Hundred percent, hundred percent. Legalising it would do nothing but cause trouble, if you ask me. So. You know, a lot of my mental problems, I, I actually blame on marijuana, not on the heavier type of drugs that I've used. So, you know, I, I really do worry about kids getting involved in drugs at an early age when they're, they're still growing, you know, their brain, you know, they're still growing and it can stop progress with so much. My whole life was stopped moving, like growing, you know, with work, school, everything. Because I started so young and it just took over everything. And, you know, yeah. that's all I wanted to do, smoke dope and dream all day, basically. And, hey, Brent. and nothing got, got done. And it got... Brett, if I can ask you, uh, are you a parent, a yeah. grandparent? Uh, what sort of ways do you communicate 
your insights here in your own family? Have you got some? Are you? Do you have children or grandchildren? Yes, yes, I do. I have both. I'm a grandfather, and and I have children. I've got two children, and unfortunately, both of my children have problems. You know, and you know that's the hardest part about it all. That my granddaughter, I'm very close with. We're trying to stop the rot, as they say. But my my other two children, they they've got their problems with drugs, and they're battling their own, you know, demons. But they're they're getting there, just as I did. I somehow got through it all. You know, I, I don't want to get too into the religious side of things, but, you know, God has definitely helped me, and I've, I've lost so many of my friends over the years, and I, I've had, like, I've, you know, od myself and been brought back many times with Narcane and that, and how I'm still here, I don't know, but I am. And um, but, but that's the biggest wow. concern is what it does to members and... You know, my mum's yeah. passed now, but she went through hell with me, absolute hell. And, yeah. you know, Brett, we don't you know, mind. We don't mind yeah. exploring a little of the religious side, as you'll know. And I wonder whether uh, you've got a, a brief story of your own connection, relationship with God, and the way He's been helping you through these challenging uh, situations all these years. Okay, well. He's been doing a lot, a lot. Um, I got to a stage, I still remember the first time I ever really met God. And um, sorry, I I try not to get too emotional when I'm speaking to people, especially on the radio. But um, yes, I remember it was at a place in in the entrance, north entrance where I used to live. And I'd got to a stage in life where I'd had it. You know, I just couldn't. Uh, cope with the addiction and the constant trouble of it all and I, I remember just giving up on the beach and and then you know all of a sudden I, I felt God and and uh, that was my first experience it just didn't happen like that I'm not saying that but that's when I met God and I remember coming back to my wife who is also recovering from addiction and, and she's doing well herself now and you know I said I found God and she had been I've just met God. I just, I felt God and, and he came, he's came into my life and it's been a long journey, but, um, you know, I'm constantly with God. Um, and, you know, when I, 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 yeah, well, I wouldn't be here without him. I know that it's hard, it's hard to, to describe it. You know, I, I God, like, if I, if I didn't know God, I wouldn't, I would never have been got clean. I know that for sure. So, yeah, Brett, thank sure. you so much for uh, just courageously sharing your own story yeah, with us today sure. and uh, just really do appreciate that. A thought or two here, Shane, as you've heard Brett's story, how does oh. that reinforce uh, the sorts of things you were saying in the first part of our conversation? Oh, Brett, uh, look, thank you. Again, I want to re- reiterate Neil's appreciation. Uh, that's a tough call, uh, especially on radio. And, and I know that experience uh, within my own family, and I'm not for myself, but from, and the, the toll it takes on parents, and then the toll it inflicts on the children, it's a tough one to stem off. And that's why we're so rabidly, and I mean that rabidly opposed to these measures that continue to set up the next generation to fail. And that's exactly what these measures are, are going to be used for, to set up the next generation to fail. Just to give you an example, yeah, I, I'm surprised at Queensland. I really am. Um, uh, Southeast Queensland in the 2013, 14, 15, 
16, and they started just disappearing with the data, was the world, the, the, the nation leader in kin care. That means the industry was growing so fast that grandparents and or other relatives were looking after the children of substance-using parents. And the amount of welfare going to that, they couldn't keep up with it, the housing. So, again, the ripple effect of continuing permission models in our society is uh, it's, it's the public health nightmare is just staggering. But what's more distressing for us is the casualties of young people, children, as you know, when kids start, as we heard from Brett, at 12 he starts, and cannabis is is what is, is now a high-end THC cannabis is the now the agent in transitioning a psychosis a psychotic episode into a psychotic disorder. That's now published in the literature. So this is really scary stuff. And of course, kids are told weed's harmless. They use weed, but now I can use cocaine and I can use. Yeah, meth, and I'll only get a little slap on the wrist, or not even that. I'll just get a, a little, hey, you want to go to drug it? Oh, no, I'm good. Oh, sorry, I won't do it again, sir. All right, no, if you go. And all you, that's an 18-year-old, by the way. I'm not talking to anything under 18. That's an 18-year-old who's still in the middle of the developing stage. So, yeah, well, all that Brett has just disclosed today, very bravely, is a classic, almost quintessential example of what goes on in most families when, when addiction actually engages. And Brett, while we've got you on the phone, I'll just uh, a further thought from you, Shane. Uh, this yep. intergenerational uh, challenge here, as you say, you know, quintessential case study for families uh, because, yep. you know, mum and dad are doing drugs, the children take on drugs, it becomes entrenched in a whole family uh, generationally. Yep. Any, any thoughts here about the risks there? Oh, get, get into the science on this is quite, quite. I might try and see that right now. But, but yeah, when there is no gene for addiction, right? And that's important to, to, to know. There's no gene. There's no like that gene for addiction. But the epigenome, and this is really important, the epigenetic, the coating, if you like, I'm using layman's terms here, of the gene. There's as much, uh, there's as much data in that as there, almost as in the gene itself. And the epigenome is malleable. It, in other words, it shifts. It shifts with behaviour. It shifts with uh, experiences, events, with information, with education. It can slowly shift. So, for example, if mum and dad are addicted to a drug and they give birth to a child, then that child is, it can be born, uh, obviously, if they're using while the child's in, in vitro, then obviously the child can come out with an addiction straight away. But what's happening to the epigenome, it's actually shifting that. That child is now inheriting a slightly shifted epigenome. Now, they can still choose whether they engage with substances or not. It's not a foregone conclusion. But every permission model adds to that dynamic for potential selection of a bad choice of engaging substances, and it's a bad choice. And the pro-drug advocates would say, well, that's stigmatising the drug user. This is a bad choice. And we've just heard from Brett why, again, why it's a bad choice on a multi-generational level. Every engagement with a substance is a bad choice. Brett in Cooler in New South Wales, thank you so much uh, for being part of our conversation today and yeah. adding a whole new dimension. Appreciate that very much. 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation. Let's take another call. Claudette is in Bunbury in Western Australia. Hi, Claudette. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for Excellent. taking my call. Um, I just wanted to uh, commend. I've got a daughter that also got involved in drugs, and she is at the moment in Shalom. 
Um, the children were taken and placed in my care, luckily, by her and the partner before child protection could take them. Um, I find the, there's such a big thing about drugs and not enough has been done. They all say it's due to education and that sort of thing, but education doesn't stop them from taking the drugs. Um, I feel there should be a lot more to be done. Um, they, she's at the moment in a, a place called Shalom. This guy also comes from the same background and he's helping a lot of people like her. He's holistic and the, he gives them purpose, he gives them a focus, he gets them dry, he puts them back on their feet. They make them feel like somebody because once they reach rock bottom, they feel like nobody. And he's doing all this, but the government won't help him because his, his program has grown so big, he's got more people, especially women with children, families, that he's rehabilitating yeah. as well. Because he's not just rehabilitating the, the user, he's rehabilitating the families as well. The family, and the children. Yep. Now, the yeah. government here said to them he had to, because he's, he's got no more room for all the, and he's turning women away, children and, you know, women and children and that. He's, um, the government got him to sink all his money into a property that could cater for these people, which they done. The organisation did this for the, as the government had advised. And once he's done that, now the government's turned around and said, oh no, we can't have that type of, um, how a housing, but next to a primary school and next to a, a preschool, a daycare that's not on because the parent, people don't want that type of people living there. But they can open a shooting house next to a primary school. It just doesn't make Correct. sense. Claudette, let me just Correct. jump in here because uh, yeah, a thought or two from you here, Shane, for Claudette. Oh, yeah, look, yeah. Claudette, thank you again. Yes, and, and your story again reflects so many that we hear. And look, I know I'm aware of Shalom and we, we do have a little bit of a connection with them because we do work with the recovery alumni. And also in WA, we work with uh, a little bit with Start, uh, the Fresh Start with George O'Neill. And look, there's some great programs out there. But the tragedy is, and you're right, every single person that gets engaged in substance use has to go back to the very start. Go back to the start of building meaning, purpose, identity, and then give them the, the, the well-being and the capacity to be able to live a life that you and I take for granted because we've never used a substance. And this is this is a scary thing. The governments will do this, and um, they, they 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 set up these scenarios, and then they create this problem. But we're, what we're advocating for, and this is where education. Your your comments interesting. Education works, but education is not just here's the data, suck on that for five minutes and see what happens. Education is both cognitive and affective domain. It's not just how, what, when, where, who. It's why. It's why. What are the motivators? What are this, this determinants socially, superculturally, um, economically? What are the what are the drivers? And addressing those as well, giving an entire framework of meaning, purpose, direction, and values back to the person who has had them stripped with the drug use, and so they have to be reinvented completely. Now, when it comes to to preventing that from happening in school, we've got the potential to do that now. And just quickly on that, it's important. We now know that for kids to change their attitudes about drugs, to change their attitudes takes about 20 hours a year of, of input, right? To change the culture, in other words, we don't want this in our culture, it's 50 hours a year of exposure to uh, protective factors. 
Now, what do the kids get a year if they're lucky? An hour and a half of drug education a year. Now, we did it with tobacco in the government, education, policy, and media all have one message, one focus, and one uh, priority, and that is quit with tobacco. And that works. The entire culture knows tobacco is bad for you. When it comes to illicit drugs, what are we doing? Giving them needles. We're endorsing. We're giving them injecting rooms. We're giving them this. We get, we're decriminalizing drugs. So we're sending a contrary message to good practice, protective practice to a younger generation. And of course, you're going to have this increasing problem. Claudette, in Bunbury and WA, thank you so much for a great contribution. Uh, these calls we've been taking, 1-800-316-316, if you'd like to have your say, 1-800-316-316. So this is the science, is it, Shane? Uh, 20 hours uh, would uh, be enough to uh, divert the thinking of young people away from taking drugs, 50 hours exposure in a, in a broader community, and we could actually have this whole thing beaten. Is that some science uh, that's well, come with all, all, all of that research? Yeah, that was the data that was brought out you know, several years ago. hasn't shifted other than what's happening with the current narrative that's in place. For example, the, just to give you an example of the, of the broader picture of that, the, what they call the Icelandic model, which has been quite popular, as opposed to the Portugal model, the Icelandic model, what they did is exactly that in the entire culture. Now, unfortunately for us, Iceland is a, a 400,000 people, pretty isolated community, so it's easy to do. But they had all the things I just talked about, education, not so much anti-drug education, but proactive, protective factor education, purpose, meaning the, the kids, their parents had to know where their kids were at all time, parent involvement in kid development in school, parent involvement in kid development in their purposes. Uh, there was curfews on children. There was curfews on parents. And this entire model, which is pretty restrictive, but it's very much about engaging for, for the purposes of development, took about 20 years, but they would shifted their entire culture from being young people being out every second night getting blind drunk or on drugs to now next to no one's using drugs at all. But that's an entire recalibration of the culture. We can do the same here, but whereas then you start talking about values. You start talking to a parent about you need to know where your children are. You need to be speaking to children about... You know, you love them, you care for them, you're giving them values, you're involved in their schoolwork, you're taking them to sporting events. You see what happens? And we go, no, I'm too busy taking drugs or too busy making money. I'm not going to be bothered with my kids, and away we go. So, yes, you're right, the principle works, but it's about engaging that. And, of course, people are going, it's too hard to do, so let's just manage the damage, and hopefully it doesn't get too bad. In fact, uh, this week is National Families Week. And yeah. uh, we might hope uh, that some of these issues come under the umbrella of what we might understand as what our leaders uh, ought to be thinking about by way of families. And uh, so you can think of families as being a nice sort of a campaign for a week, uh, but this sort of stuff comes right into families, doesn't it? And, and families Correct. have to take some responsibility. We're all thinking about how the government can legislate, but somehow or other you've got to... Uh, you know, I guess if you've got this model that can work in schools 20 hours, maybe families need to have some sort of resource and discussion around these things for a certain amount of time in those formative years too. What do you say to families when they're saying, how do we protect ourselves, Shane? Well, exactly, Neil. I think that's the key. If you, if you actually care about your kids, and most, most parents for the large part do care about their kids, but they're also following the cues from culture. What we would argue that... If you don't want your kids on drugs, then the, the way you start with is modelling a drug-free house. Now, that you know that may include alcohol as well. The whole idea of modelling drug use, that the science in that is now in. Ch showing, teaching a child how to use 
alcohol at a young age is a huge mistake. The evidence of that is completely clear because the brain's still developing. So it's not just a prohibition message, not just drugs are bad, don't do drugs, don't do drugs or I'll kick you out of the house, that kind of narrative. It's, hey, man, what's going on? What, you know, you're a unique person. Where are you going? What's your meaning for life? What's our meaning for life? Are we developing a culture of care, a culture that gives meaning, direction, purpose? All those things are really important. And, of course, understanding how the contagions in the peer culture influence their kids. So teaching the kids to understand that. And at a young age, even at primary school, they can be teaching their children about what peer negative peer pressure looks like and what positive peer pressure looks like and what those contagions look like. And you actually do that effectively and kids can grow up and they all of a sudden become aware, hang on a minute, now, I value my mum and dad saying, and now they're still telling us that parents up to the age of, you know, 14, 15, 16 even, still are the greatest influence in their kids' lives. So we need to just cultivate that capacity and introduce better protective factor uh, regimens. And we do that with our, some of our programs as well, just basically parenting things, not teaching you how to parent, but teaching you how to engage in that space with the young people. But that's really important. So overall worldview, your family cares for you. They've got good values. They are really important factors. Not a guarantee, but they are really important factors. Well, you've got to get some foundations in place, haven't you? And Shane, always so deeply appreciate your great insights. And uh, and uh, you are a walking encyclopedia of knowledge around all of these issues. And you come from a fabulous perspective. I do want to connect listeners to you, Shane Varco. Uh, you're the CEO at Dalgano Institute and the dalganoinstitute.org.au uh, is the website for Dalgano, which is a health education charity. And uh, no doubt a few extra friends, perhaps even a few extra dollars by way of donation could be very helpful for the good work that you do. Uh, you're into education. And one of the ways you communicate with young people is with your no-brainer website, the nobrainer.org.au website. And you, su- you can subscribe to that and get regular newsletters arriving in your inbox. How does that no-brainer work? And uh, have you seen real success with it? And how's your subscription level looking, Shane? Have you got some insights into no-brainer? Sure, just quickly. Thank you. Very kind words, Neil, and I do appreciate that. We have a great team around us. We have a great reference group, what we call our Drug and Alcohol Research Think Tank, our DART Think Tank. We have three professors. We have uh, medical doctors, psychologists, master educators. So what we do is we're very serious about being evidence-based, but we also want to get outside the the, the current narratives that have just been undermined by certain actors. But the no-brainer website, yeah, we've certainly, our our subscriber base is growing. We're excited by that. And we're developing our YouTube channel is, uh, you know, continuing to be added to. We have some significant resources on our YouTube channel. We encourage people to subscribe and hit the notification button there as well. And the resources that you can use in our Humpty Dumpty Resiliency Education Coaching Program is 12 videos and PowerPoints free of charge to the public on our no-brainer website. That, that can be really helpful engaging with your, your small group of you know, teenagers with uh, sporting clubs, scout groups, uh, youth groups, you know, whatever a community organisation, mums and dads, teachers, they can engage you absolutely free of charge on that website. So we encourage people to use that as well. That one's the nobrainer.org.au website. And uh, as Shane says, uh, the YouTube channel, uh, one worth checking on and uh, click on the subscribe button for that one as well. Uh, Shane Varco, CEO, Dalgano Institute. Shane, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts with us today on 2020. Absolute pleasure and thank you for the time. 
Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au.